what is called the model prayer in, uh, in response to uh, the disciples' question to the Lord that he teach them how to pray. But in John 17 is the Lord's prayer. And if you would know the deepest emotions of the Lord Jesus Christ and his greatest desires for you as a Christian and for us as a church, then you must read John 17. And as that prayer came near its conclusion, Jesus prayed, I do not ask you, Father, that you would take them out of the world, but that you would keep them within the world and preserve them through your word, which is truth. He prayed also that they might be one, even as we, meaning he and the Father, are one. And in this passage, Peter echoes what Jesus calls for in John 17 by calling for a oneness of believers. Now, Peter knew and Jesus knew and neither encouraged the kind of oneness which means a complete unanimous agreement of all opinions on all matters. That's not what he is talking about. Rather, what he is calling for is a same mindedness, a one-mindedness that whereas powerful tensions that exist within all of us, powerful differences in our makeup and our background and our circumstances and our opinions and our preferences all are held together in a unity because all of us alike share a common and overruling loyalty to Jesus Christ. Same-mindedness. In fundamental things, unity, yes. In non-essential things, harmony, where different notes go together to make a chord. But in all things, love. The kind of love that the Father has shown us through Jesus Christ. I suppose one of the great tragedies of modern Christianity is to realize how far away we are from actually realizing this command. It is not an option. It is not an ideal. It is an open and unqualified command that the Lord makes. How sad and tragic it is to see how far away we are from actually realizing this. In 1 Corinthians 3, verse 3, Paul says that where there are divisions and where there is strife, it is proof positive, undeniable evidence of carnality. It is amazing to me how often Christians pride themselves in their right to cause trouble. You know, it is not someone who offends, who causes trouble in the church. It is someone who picks up that offense and carries it like a two-ton fullback until they are quite sure that everybody in the world knows about it. The scripture says there's six things that God hates and it names those things, most of them dealing with the mouth. And the seventh, it says, is an abomination, which is a hatred beyond all hatreds. And that hatred of God is to those who call, who cause discord among the brethren. 
This passage says, the Lord Jesus says, when you are offended, you forgive it. If you do not, then your sin is greater than the one who offended. He calls for a zeal, a proven zeal by experience, commanded by the Word, which produces a oneness, a sameness of mind, which brings glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. In verses 8 and 9, this zeal produces a constant purpose, a constant purpose. The purpose of God is twofold in relationship to us. One, that there be peace and harmony among the brethren. And two, that there be perpetual continuing blessings upon his people. Not unanimity of opinion, but rather these powerful forces within all of us held together by this great loyalty that we share to Christ. This will never happen until we put self below the top level of importance. As long as we are easily offended, we are baby Christians at best, if Christians at all. As long as we cherish nothing better than the memory of an offense, then we are ungodly and carnal and fleshly and in stark and continuing opposition to everything God wants to do in our lives and in the church. He uses the word sympathetic. By the way, in verse 8, there are four words that occur nowhere else in the New Testament and one that occurs only one place, which passage I shall read later on. It is not a unique thing that Peter calls for, but rather conditioned by years of experience, Peter puts in such a few words the very important things about the purpose that God wants to accomplish through our zealousness, through our zeal, our commitment to His purpose in our lives. Sympathy and selfishness cannot coexist. That's very simple. True sympathy for other people rules out selfishness, and selfishness so blinds us to the needs of others that we cannot be sympathetic to them. Compassion is the very essence of God. It is the very being of Jesus Christ. And Peter calls for it. Kind-hearted or pitiable or willing to pity to consider others in the same way that we consider ourselves. And oh, what a change this would produce if only we would live in this way. What a change it would produce if our zeal for Christ was according to knowledge, if our zeal was directed toward the benefit of others and the forgetting of things that we have experienced and things that have been done to us. Verse 9 would teach us that the only kind of retaliation open for a Christian is to retaliate by returning good in the place of evil. That is the only kind of retaliation allowed for us. This oneness, 
that he calls for we might consider like the oneness of a plant where the tendril and the leaf and the fruit in harmony and oneness honor God by their growth, by the beauty of nature and produce what they were intended to produce. It is not the harmony of a brick nor of a pile of bricks but of a house where brick and mortar and wood and plaster and a roof all go together in oneness to produce a home and a shelter to protect those who dwell therein. It is not the oneness of a child, but the oneness of a family where children and adults of different ages and temperaments and personalities all honor and love one another even though they are greatly different in many ways. It is the oneness of a body where from eyelash to foot, from heart to blood vein, from brain to nerve fiber, there is an endless infinity of variety and yet there is a unity and a oneness of the body. And it is that illustration which Christ and Paul use to describe the church. We are commanded in these verses to Christians to love them as brethren. I want to remind you that the text does not say feel like loving somebody. The text does not say wait until you feel love and then give it. The text says love, period. Love primarily is not an uncontrolled emotion. Love is something that is done by choice, that is given by an act of the will. The word love in this passage, the predominant word of many Greek words for love in the New Testament, is the word agape, and it denotes a love that is given freely without condition by choice by the one who loves. To the weak, we are told to be sympathetic. To all people, we are told to be courteous. And to our enemies, we are told not to retaliate. You know, it's much easier for all of us as human beings to rebuke, to complain, to criticize, and to condemn than it is to care and to heal. But when we yield to our humanity to such an extent that in practice we do rebuke, condemn, criticize, complain, we need to be aware that when we do, we are acting consistent with the image of Satan himself that sin has left stamped upon our souls. Righteous indignation is the privilege of God himself and no one else. 
It is restricted to God. For as Paul says in Ephesians 4, you forgive others. Why? Because Christ has forgiven you in the same way. Beware of extremes as we seek to carry out God's purpose for our lives. Beware of things that take your eyes off of Christ. Christian extremism is anything that takes your eyes off of Jesus. There can be bibliolatry, worship of the Bible. There can be idolatry and worship of the Holy Spirit. There can be any number of ways in which things that seem to be good can become so magnified that they take our eyes off Christ. Beware of those things. Beware of those extremes that call for that kind of attention. Be stable, not carried away by every wind of doctrine as the scriptures urge us. For God has a constant purpose to be accomplished through our commitment, our zealous devotion to him. And that purpose is peace and harmony among the brethren. And he desires to bless us and to bless those around us through our lives. Notice in verse 9 that we are to give a blessing in order that God's purpose of our receiving an inheritance might be carried out. Remember the law of the harvest. You will see it applied all over this passage of Scripture. For in this passage and all over the New Testament, it is affirmed that be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. If you would be forgiven, you must forgive. If you would be blessed, you must give a blessing to those who curse you. And when you sow seeds of retaliation and revenge and bitterness, even if you're right, Be made aware that you will reap the seed that you have sown and he who sows to the wind shall reap from the whirlwind and you have no right to accuse or complain when you suffer rejection, when you suffer criticism, when you suffer complaint and rebuke and condemnation at the hands of other people because those are the things which you have given to other people. A constant purpose peace and harmony and blessing that God wants to accomplish through our lives. Then in verses 10 through 12, here is a conditioned preservation. This expands the illustration of the law of the harvest. This expands consideration of the fact that you and I will experience in life the things that we give to other people. In these verses... Peter quotes Psalm 34, verses 12 to 16, to illustrate the fact that if you would see good days and experience the good life, then you too must sow that kind of seed. He says, let him who means to live life and see, to love life and see good days, refrain his tongues from evil and his lips from seeking guile, and let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it, for the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those 
who do evil. We might learn from this passage from Psalm 34 that the only reason we fear other people is because we do not have the right attitude toward God. Now in the English Bible, the word comes across fear. It means awe or respect. It means the proper attitude and understanding of who and what God is and of God's power. And it is a plain and simple fact that if you truly have the fear of the Lord in your heart, you can fear nothing else. You may know when you fear the opinions of others. You may know when you're very sensitive and thrown and cannot handle what anybody says or anybody thinks, whether it's right or true or not. You may know when you feel pressured to act simply because of what somebody thinks rather than because of what is right, that you do not have the proper fear of the Lord. 1 John says, the one who is mature in God's love knows no fear because perfect love casts out fear. So you may know in nervousness and uneasiness and fear of circumstance and fear of men and fear of failure that there is an immaturity in your love relationship to God. We need to be aware as we live right, no matter how people respond to us, we need to be aware that God is keeping account and that God knows and that God cares so much that God himself took our punishment on him that we might not have to be punished. Notice the law of the harvest again in verse 10. Refrain your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking guile. If you sow words of bitterness, criticism, and complaint, you will reap them. Make no mistake about it. There is no way around it. He says, let him turn away from evil and do good. In Ecclesiastes 2.2, the man of wisdom says that we ought to flee evil the way we flee from a snake. Let him seek peace and pursue it. How often have you heard somebody said, I did my part and that's all I'm going to do? How often have you heard that? Sounds rather like a small child, doesn't it? That's exactly what it's like. Notice the latter part of verse 11 says, Seek peace and pursue it. Go after it, chase it. If peace in a personal relationship escapes you, run after it. If peace in your home escapes you and you cannot find it and there is tension in the home between the husband and wife, between the parents and the children, then you lay all else aside and you go after that peace and seek it, pursue it with all that you have. If you tell me that there are broken relationships and things that are unmendable and things that have been done that cannot be forgotten, you have told me only that you are full of the devil. That you will not seek and pursue peace when it escapes you in response to the open, plain, and simple command of God's word. Seek peace and pursue it. In that estranged relationship 
of family, perhaps outside of your home in the family circle. Things like that are perpetuated for decades and generations. Have you pursued peace and done everything that you possibly could to secure it? In those relationships on the job that make your work situation an unpleasant time, that weigh you down and bring you down day by day on the job, have you sought peace? Have you pursued it? in every way that you can. And in the church, in the minuscule little petty concerns that we magnify to hurt other people, have you sought and pursued peace and gone after it in every way that you can? If you have not, you have not done your part. Here indeed is what is commanded for us a conditioned preservation. Do you want peace in your heart? Then pursue peace with other people. Do you want to be preserved among the trials and temptations of life? Then sow the seeds of preservation. Sow the seeds of love. Sow the seeds of concern to other people. Seek peace, pursue it, and go after it. And verse 12 is a principle. It's not talking about the saved and the lost. It's talking about an operational thing every day. He says the eyes of the Lord, the eyes of the Lord in Scripture concern, uh, rather explain to us his concern, his caring, his understanding, his protection. The face of the Lord in Scripture is his punishment, his uh, <clears throat> judgment on sin wherever he finds it. And verse 12 says that the, the eyes of the Lord are upon those who do righteousness, but his face is against those who do evil. And when you, even as God's child, set your face against God by rebellion, by ungodliness, and nothing is more unlike God than an unforgiving attitude. Nothing is more unlike God. That is the most ungodly thing anybody can do. Immorality, adultery, Murder are not the most awful, ungodly things in the world. An unforgiving spirit is the worst thing on the earth. And Scripture says, verse 12 confirms that when you set your face against God, as a matter of harvest, what you sow you will reap. The face of God is set against you and you are deprived of his fellowship and his companionship in your daily life. Then notice in verses 13 and 14, here is a continuing peace. The product of zeal which God commands is a continuing peace. Persecution cannot touch your soul. Persecution cannot take away your peace. Persecution cannot take the things that mean the most to you if you are fully committed to the Lordship of Christ. We need to remember always that God overrules our suffering. God, through our suffering, glorifies Christ. He blesses you when you suffer, and He blesses others by way of your example. True Christianity is an irritant to the world. An ancient Greek philosopher recorded in his diary once upon receiving the praise of his most bitter enemy, I wonder what I have done so bad 
that he praises me. Jesus said, if the world hated me, and it most certainly did, then the world will also hate you. Jesus said, woe be unto you when all men speak well of you. We need to understand that it is a terrible condemnation for a Christian to be universally loved and accepted by the world. It very simply bears witness that our Christianity is so bland and ineffective, it is so unlike Christ that the world finds nothing in us to object to. We are not to court disfavor with the world. Rather, Peter goes on to say that we are to live in such a way that the world has no reason to accuse us. But you need to understand that if you live for Jesus, if you live like Christ, you will not be universally loved and accepted. If being a saint means to have no enemies, then Jesus Christ certainly doesn't qualify. He has more enemies than any man who ever lived. Here is a continuing peace. Peter says, Jesus said, if you live for Christ, you will suffer, but that suffering cannot touch your peace. It cannot touch your soul. There is a question here. Where is your treasure? Is your treasure such that the circumstances of life can touch it? Do the things you carry in your heart, are they things that perish? Are they things that are eternal? If you lost everything that you possessed, would you lose your treasure? Peter calls for us to lay up treasures in a place where circumstance cannot take them away. And he says that if we do, we will be blessed. Now, to be blessed is higher than happiness. It is more complete than happiness. And verse 14 reminds us that we are not to fear. Literally, the Greek says, do not fear their fear and do not be troubled. And so you may know that to be fearful is to be sinful. You may know that to fear men is not to have the proper attitude of love, of respect and understanding about who God is. You may know that His product of your commitment is a continuing peace in your heart. Then in verses 15 to 17, here is a constructive privilege. The one subject that is treated in 1 Peter more than anything else is the subject of Christian suffering. The whole idea of the book is that in the midst of trial and suffering, here are certain things that have been proven and tried so as by fire that have been shown to be real and genuine and helpful to us. And you and I have a constructive privilege, and that privilege is to suffer for Christ. Peter would say that silent devotion is not enough. We must be ready to speak, but at all times be gentle and kind, honoring the Word of God, proclaiming the Word of God, not defending it, God's placed us under no obligation to argue anybody into heaven. 
God has not told us to defend his honor or try to persuade somebody that, he, that the Bible is his word. Rather, we are to honor God, we are to proclaim the word, and we are to let God defend himself. I would remind you on the basis of verse 15, it says, always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Anyone has a right to your Christian testimony. And a very practical application of this is that when you withhold your Christian faith from those that you come in contact with, you're sinning against them and against God. Anyone has a right to your testimony. The occasion of it, he says, be ready on any occasion. The need of it, anyone who asks, anyone is entitled to your testimony. The subject of it, the hope that is in you, what you know, what you have experienced, what God has done in your life. And the manner of it with gentleness and with reverence. Who is Lord of the temple? Verse 15 says, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. Are material things Lord in the temple so that your highest goal is to accomplish material success? Is anarchy Lord in your temple so that your true desire is to please yourself? without reference to the Lord, is indifference, Lord, to such as an extent that there is no drive or desire to accomplish anything for him. What about revenge? Where revenge is, Lord, Satan is in control. But when Christ is Lord, there will be love. There will be forgiveness there will be peace and harmony in our experiences. Verse 16 says that as you suffer, keep a good conscience in order that those who criticize you may be put to shame for they'll have no right to say what they say. I was reminded in this passage of Ephesians 4, these are four verses of Scripture that every Christian ought to memorize. I want you to listen very carefully to what they say. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such words as are good for edification. Edification means to build up. According to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. Let me ask you, are the people to whom you talk blessed by what you say? Are they discouraged? Are they depressed? Are they troubled by what you say? If they are, you have no right to say it. No unwholesome word, but only such that it gives grace to those who hear. Verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. How do you grieve the Holy Spirit? By the way that you talk. Let all bitterness 
and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. In your report to other people about things that you have experienced, is there any bitterness, any wrath, any anger or clamor? Is there any slander, slander which is to use the truth in a malicious way? Peter says, Paul says rather, let this be put away from you along with all malice. In Ephesians 4.32, that we teach to small children so that they might memorize is something that adults should memorize. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. I would point out that it doesn't say treat others like they treat you. It certainly does not say when someone has treated you in a poor way, make sure everyone knows so that you can hurt them in return. It says be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another in the same way that Christ has forgiven you. I have never known a revengeful person who wanted revenge carried out on them. I have never known a critical person who liked to be criticized. In fact, critical people are unbelievably sensitive to criticism. We might put two important passages of Scripture like this Together, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap, because you will be forgiven in the way that you forgive others. Zeal is commanded. Only a zealous, a wholehearted commitment to God produces purpose in our lives. Only this brings preservation and peace amidst the trials of life, and the trials of life are our privilege before God. And a question to be dealt with is this. Is your life made of small things? Do you make your way among little and petty things, or do you zealously follow Christ in order that His purpose might be fulfilled in you? May we pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for the word, but Lord, the word is strong. It's quick and powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. And Lord, to be hit with a sword hurts. Father, we stand laid bare before our own eyes by this scripture, realizing that very often, Lord, we cherish ourselves more than we cherish you. Lord, we'd rather criticize somebody than help them. We'd rather spread an offense than forgive it as you command. Lord, I pray that you might make us a people in whose lives your purpose is accomplished, that we might rejoice in our privilege to suffer for you. I thank you for your preservation. 
I thank you for your peace. And may we sow seeds in the lives of others that may be reaped to their salvation and to the glory of Jesus. For I pray in his name. Amen. We stand to sing in just a moment our hymn of invitation, hymn 361, Wherever He Leads, I'll Go. I don't know your heart. I don't know your need. But I know that the answer is found in a wholehearted commitment to Christ. Some of you this morning need to trust the Lord Jesus as your Savior. You need to come to God in an awareness that you are a sinner and ask Jesus to forgive your sins, to save you and to live in your heart. Some of you are here today and you need to invest your life as members of this church, you realize God doesn't want anybody inactive. If this is where God wants you, you yield to his promptings and you do what he says. Some of you need simply to kneel and pray in a fresh commitment to Christ and a high and holy resolve to sow seeds of peace and harmony. Whatever God would have you do, proudly, publicly, you step to the aisle to share with us what he's doing in your heart. Do it right now. Do it quickly as we stand and sing together. Take up thy cross and
of worship is a divine appointment. No one of us ever has to go away from worship with any needs unmet. It never has to happen because God has so arranged worship that when we open ourselves to Him and respond to Him, and that's got nothing to do directly with the message or with the music, it's an attitude of the heart. And when you open yourself to the presence of God, God will touch you and tell you what you need and what He wants to do about it. And as you respond to Him, then you truly have worshipped. And after all, there is no worship unless there is response. You have not worshipped unless you respond to God's Spirit. And often that response takes a public form. God doesn't reveal His will to us in order that we may consider it, but rather that we may obey it. And so if today you feel a need to be saved, now is the time to do it. Today, if you feel a need to invest your life in the church, now is the time to do it. For God has revealed himself to you in order that you may obey. Whatever God would have you do, there will be no peace until you do it his way. For he will not meet us halfway. He will not compromise. He demands obedience. Whatever your public commitment, right now and quickly, as we sing just a moment longer, you do what he demands.